my name's Mark Rogerson. Uh, I work for the Electronic Enlightenment Project at the Bodleian Libraries uh, here at Oxford. Um, I'll just give a, a brief introduction about myself and the project and then how uh, that interrelates with digital publishing. Uh, so I started off, uh, as, as Pip said, I've been teaching uh, digital publishing at Brooks for uh, about 10 years. Uh, I started as a, a computer programmer and was doing software support for people. Then I started doing software training for people. Uh, and now I actually build the things that I used to do the support for. Um, the, the reason that uh, I'm, I'm here is talking about uh, di digital publishing from our point of view, which is uh, electronic alignment contains digitized correspondence. Um, so we have about uh, 63,000, sorry, yeah, about 63,000 letters uh, across nearly 8,000 correspondence. Um, primarily it comes from uh, critical editions that have been printed over the last sort of 50 or so years. Um, but more and more we're moving towards born digital content, which is content supplied by academics like yourselves. Um, what we're trying to do is, is try and make it a bit easier for people to publish, really. Um, it's a relatively sort of straightforward system. There are, as I say, a huge number of letters. Each letter has annotations. Um, we break it down by the author, the recipient, the date. We're adding location information. Um, but the, the key thing is when, when we talk about digital publishing, what do we actually mean by it? Now, print, online, ebooks, apps, most people think of the last three as being digital publishing. Um, but actually, realistically, they all are. Um, it's only at the very last minute, realistically, that something becomes a physical object. Well, up until that point, modern publishing, it's all digital. Um, and that's one of the things that, that people kind of get caught out by, I think, is that they sort of think you do things in a completely different way if you're going to publish stuff online. Um, and you shouldn't be thinking like that. It's actually the same process that you would go through whether you're going to produce a book, an ebook, or a, a website, um, some online system, or indeed a, a, an app, something like that. Um, and the, the key thing is to say, you, you don't get obsessed with the technology. And this comes especially from, from doing uh, teaching of applications for things like uh, Quark, InDesign, these programs that are designed to do desktop publishing. Um, people got to the point where they were obsessed with learning what every single menu does, what every item uh, enables them to do. And actually, it's, the problem is you then move to the next version and everybody sits there and half the class would go, oh, well, I bought the book for version four and I don't know where we are now. Because they're so obsessed with exactly which item it is that they're supposed to be clicking on at this point in time to be able to format their text or present it in some particular way. And if you think much more about what you're actually trying to achieve with these things, then the way that you go about it is slightly different. You don't get sort of to the point where you go, oh, well, I have to use Word because that's what I want to end up with. Is you think about, well, actually, I want to edit my document. I want to, say, for, for correspondence, for example, we need to know the author, the recipient. Um, in our case, we, we have to be quite careful because if you've got a letter, you would transcribe what it actually says the author is on the, on the letter, the sign-off and the uh, recipient. But actually, when you're doing it digitally, is just having 
for example, John Smith or something, doesn't really help. So one of the things that we do with, with the Electronic Enlightenment Project is we try and identify each of the authors and recipients so that they can then be connected up, so that every a letter that is authored by one person, we can see the letters that they received or indeed other letters that they wrote. <coughs> so it doesn't matter how that is done technically, it's much more about thinking that that's the kind of thing we want to do in the future. So one of the, the problems we have with translating printed correspondence editions to the digital realm is that when they were printed, they didn't have to worry about these things. They can get away with just saying, John Smith was the recipient of this letter or the, uh, or the author of the letter. They don't have to, beyond maybe a little footnote saying uh, he was the uh, Lord's Commissioner to Ireland from 1717 to 1718 or something. They, just, they can put that and then they can move on. They don't have to say where he was born, what his nationality was. It's, it's an open-ended thing. And they often use the excuse that, well, there's not much space in the print edition, so we didn't feel it was necessary. Um, so one of the things that we spend most of our time doing is actually identifying that exact person and then trying to build up a biography for it, find other resources online that connect to that same person. And once you have identified an individual, then you can reuse that person throughout the, the system. Um, so it's, from our point of view, there's, there's two sort of concepts for the, the content. Is the actual item that, that has been transcribed, the original manuscript or whatever. Uh, and then there's the metadata. As I say, with traditional print, they are taking those things into account, but not to as, as far as we need to from a, a digital point of view. And if you work from these sort of principles at the beginning, you can then produce printed editions or online editions or whatever else format the output at the very end by taking those sort of things into account before you start. So it's worth thinking about that kind of uh, content. We have some, some quite convoluted names. We have to break them down into what actually, if you were going to try and do this in an index, when you sort them, how would you sort this person? What do they come under in the index? Is it uh, hmm. <laughs> von Brandenburg or is it Margrave of Ansbach? Uh, and so on. So by thinking all these things through as fairly early as possible, you can then apply those rules so that then when we want to produce, if you do an ebook, for example, you want an index that's alphabetical by surname at the end. If we've already broken the names down as we're doing them, it's very, very easy to then produce that extra information. Um, I worked on a, a, a printed text that was in, an index of people who were studying the uh, 18th century. And one of the problems with that was that they presented us with a list of, of these people, but they wanted people to be able to use the book as if it was a database. So they wanted to be able to search by the uh, topic that people were interested in, the uh, affiliation for their university, uh, and obviously their name. So actually the content of the book was probably only the first 200 pages. The next 600 pages were different indexes to that same content. Um, because in print, that was the only real way you could do that. Whereas online, we can just put it up once and give people a, a different way into that information by making sure that when we index something like this, we've got Christian, Frederick, Charles, Alexander, the, are all first names. Um, and then we've got Van, von Brandenburg as his surname, and then Margrave of Ansbach as his title. So by splitting these things up, it makes life a lot easier for us uh, later on down the road. Um, one of the other things is, is standardization the difference between what is actually in the, the manuscript, so to say, and, and what you're going to put online. 
So you find things, for example, we have lots of uh, instances of early printed editions, which is someone's got the manuscript, they've found that it has been previously printed in, in various editions uh, over the last sort of 100 years. Um, and each time they've either transcribed what's on the title page of the book, the spine of the book, or what they think it would have said if it had been expanded out from the abbreviations that were actually on the bit of paper they were looking at. And, and across the 37 odd different editions that we use as our source materials, they all do it slightly differently. Uh, and again, by standardizing, we get a chance to actually be able to line these things up and find that across the various sources that we're using, they're all actually sharing a, a huge number of, of uh, original information. But up until the point where somebody sits down and standardizes it, you can't tell. Uh, and using things like uh, uh, vocabularies, uh, ways of, of agreeing on something, so that then you can say, so I don't know whether anybody's come across VIAF, which is a, a consortium for trying to agree on name formats for people, so that everybody gets an identifier, and then you can, you can share that information and say, well, I'm talking about the same person as somebody else is by wherever possible trying to agree with somebody else. The hope is that then if they're agreeing with somebody else, your person can be connected to that other person by that middle ground. Um, so by using techniques like that, by standardizing but agreeing on the standardization, your information then gets found by people finding some other material that is actually related um, because you've agreed on this central uh, identity. Um, one of the things with, with EE is, as I say, we've, we started off with critical editions, but what we're trying to do is encourage academics to publish their edited correspondences. And one of the things that we, we're finding is people find literally one or two letters in an archive. Now, traditionally, they would maybe have edited them for their own paper and they would put them into a journal or something like that. They'll get printed, they may get published in the journal, but then they will be just left on their own as single little islands of correspondence dotted around through these various journals of whatever topic that they felt uh, was appropriate to the, the author or recipient of the letter that they were dealing with. Because EE is, is just a, a, a large pot to put correspondence in, if you like, one of the things it enables us to do is to take a single one-off letter that someone has, has found in an archive um, and add it to the collection. And more often than not, we're finding that that one person is actually a bridge between two formerly very famous people that we have large bodies of correspondence. Turns out this person in the middle wrote to both of them, for example. Um, so we're getting that quite a lot where normally people would go, well, I can't really justify publishing this one letter. So we're trying to make it easier for people to, to put that content in. Um, and that kind of goes with the, the correspondent not considered significant enough. So we have quite a few projects where people are working on bodies of letters, primarily personal correspondence from their families. But again, it turns out that they were connected to, um, one family is, is heavily connected with uh, the Board of Trade and, and the uh, relations with, with India uh, in the 18th century. And they can't find someone to traditionally publish an edition of those letters. There's seven or, seven or 8,000 letters in their family collection. Um, because of the way that he's built, everybody is classed as being an equal. So you can have the works of, of Voltaire or Rousseau or John Locke or Jeremy Bentham, as well as some chap who lived down the road, um, because they, as I say, they start to knit together. Um, so it, it means that you don't have to justify why this person should be included anymore. 
Um, and as I say, it means that, that individual letters become uh, much more significant than if they're just published on their own. It also allows us to do um, bits of, of correspondence after a, a print edition's been finished. So we're, we're filling out additional volumes of existing uh, correspondence, for example. Um, we're finding one of the things through, through our work, we're trying to get more and more academics who are using the site for research to actually feed back to us information. And they will get credited and they will then be attributed to being a, an additional editor or depending on, on the involvement that they've had. Um, we're finding where we have a, a previously unidentified correspondent, somebody happens to, to know more about that particular person, they can fill in information. Um, and then it becomes somewhere for them to be able to publish more of their work. Um, because it's, it's a, a free-flowing digital system, you don't have to decide beforehand where you're going with it. So there's, we can support diplomatic editions where you've got a single manuscript that's been transcribed and edited um, and then annotated. But we also have critical editions where people have multiple manuscript sources recorded um, and then the, the differences between them and so on. And obviously the, the system supports the original language of the manuscript and then translations. Um, and one of the, the key things with the, the digital publication is that you don't have to wait till you've got an, enough for an entire volume of an edition, for example. So we have uh, colleagues who are working for traditional print publishers where they're waiting to publish volume two um, because uh, of an editor or something. But volumes three, four, five, and six are all done. But they're just sat there waiting to be published because volume two hasn't been finished yet. Whereas with the digital publication world, we don't have to hold something back just because some other piece isn't ready yet. So we can fill things in. In fact, we've got letters where we don't actually know the original author, for example, or we don't know the original recipient, but we can put them up online with a, an as yet unidentified attribute. And then if later on further research enables us to identify that person, we can fill in those blanks. Um, so to, to try and make it uh, possible, one of the things we do is we, we work with, with editors um, to provide them with, with ways that they can edit the, the correspondence. So that may be something as simple as providing a, a Word template file that we've built up that has slots to put in the person's, the various parts of the person's name, or the date format, whether it be Julian or Gregorian, um, or whether it be in the revolutionary calendar, which is always a fun one. Um, so it then enables them to work with whatever software that they, they feel comfortable with. It's not about angle brackets and, and tagging things up in a way that we've prescribed to them. It gives them a much more fluid way of working with their content. Um, and then it, we have an editorial board which they can then send their content through to be uh, looked at and sent back if necessary or, or to, to try and help them with the, the process of their, their work. Um, and then one of the things that we have is on each letter there is actually a link to either if it's a, a group of people working on letters or if it's a theme, then we have group uh, pages. And we also have individual pages for each author. So anybody who's contributed content to Electronic Enlightenment, whether it be annotations or actual uh, full transcriptions or editions. Um, and we've worked with, with the RAE and RAF exercise boards to be able to offer them access to the resource so that, they can, uh, so that we can tailor the way that it's presented specifically for those sort of exercises um, as they're becoming more and more. Uh, important. Um, 
just on on another note, it's it's non-exclusive. So one of the key things that you'll find when you're you're looking at publishing material is whether or not there is a, a sort of lock-in period, or whether it's a an exclusive contract or a non-exclusive contract. So one of the things that we're adamant about is that if you publish your content in the E, it should also be able to go anywhere else you want, um, and that's something that that's that's can be quite unusual with some online projects. It can be that if you publish it in a journal, it has to stay in the journal until a certain period before you can republish it somewhere else. Um, uh, and then because of the, the process, because you're, you're doing these things to a much, in a way, a, a more stricter schedule, uh, the way that you produce the content, means that you can then take that digital content and put it back out as some other format. So by, by taking care right at the beginning, you end up not locking yourself into saying, well, we're going to have to print a, an edition or we're going to make a, an ebook or a website. You can actually take the content once it's done and then turn it into uh, some other output, whether it be uh, an ebook, uh, an anthology of letters, or uh, an actual printed edition or something. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you.